Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Dan Rogers at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Well, good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to be here with all of you tonight. It's December, whether you believe it or not. The year has gone incredibly quick. We're starting a brand new series called Extravagant Love. And tonight, we're focusing in on God's saving love. You know, the love of God is something that we talk about all the time, and that's because it changes everything. It shines into the darkness of our world. It brings hope to the hopeless. And how could it not? I mean, just think about it. The God of the universe not only sees us, he knows us and loves us perfectly. How could that not change everything? I've only got one word for love in the English language. They actually use four different words in the New Testament alone, and I think there's seven in the Greek language. There's eros, which is a sexual love. There's philia, which is a brotherly love, the love of a friend. There's storhe, which is used to describe the love of family. And then there's agape, which is God's love. Agape love stands apart from the rest because of its perfection. It's a selfless, sacrificial love. It's a love that gives and expects nothing in return. It's a divine love, which means it's beyond us. That love is found in him and in him alone. So encountering that love, receiving it, is life-changing. How could it not be? It's a love that fills in the cracks, that transforms us and makes us whole. It's a beautiful thing. That's why we talk about it so often. Well, tonight we're going to start by looking at what is probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. I mean, seriously, everybody knows John 3.16. Even some people who've never been to church in their life know John 3.16 because it's on coffee cups, it's on t-shirts, knitted beanies, it's everywhere, right? We love this verse. It's almost too familiar We've heard it so many times that we just kind of brush over it. I was thinking about this during the week, but there's a correlation between our understanding of how much we need something and then our appreciation of it. I'll give you an example. Six months ago, I had no idea what a podiatrist did, and I really couldn't care less if they existed or not. I'll be honest with you, okay? Then I got fat. So I started exercising to try and be less fat, and I ran into some issues. See, every time I went for a run, I'd get shin splints. My legs would just puff up. It's ridiculous, right? And I'd hobble home, defeated again by the run. So I went to the podiatrist for the first time in my life, and guess what? It was amazing. It was fantastic. I discovered that actually they're fantastic. She gives me some exercises. She's got me stretching twice a day. Not that I actually remember to stretch twice a day, but I'm in heart and soul. I'm with her. Okay, I'm trying my best, all right? And here's the thing. It had actually worked as much as I would with me only doing my stretches every now and again, all right? That I can actually run now. It's maybe a loose terminology for running, but my feet leave the ground, and so I'm going to put it into the category, and I just appreciate it if you just let me have that one, okay? So it worked. Now, I now love my podiatrist. She's taken all of my money. It's ridiculous. They're very expensive. If you're not going to uni yet, be a podiatrist. Trust me. It's fantastic, all right? 
But I now understand how much I needed her help, and so I appreciate what she does. Well, it's not that complicated, right? We experience something, we realize how good it is, and then we appreciate it more. It's the same here with John 3.16. Your love of this verse and the grace of God in general is directly connected to your understanding of just how broken and sinful you are. How much you need it. That's why Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's our foundation tonight. That We stand here as broken people who had no hope of saving ourselves. And in the light of that truth, this passage stands as incredibly good news so let's read it together. I think Michael is going to read the passage for us. John three sixteen to 21. Thank you so much, brother. Go for it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. It's an amazing passage of Scripture, but I want to give you some context before we unpack it together. You see, this passage is a part of a bigger story that actually starts in verse 1 of this chapter. There's a man named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee and an expert in the law. In fact, he was one of the most powerful and wealthy men in all of Jerusalem. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, he, and he was a prominent rabbi at that time. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, so we know that he was actually one of the most prominent rabbis at that time. And yet we get to verse 2, and we see him seek out Jesus in the middle of the night because he's looking for more. Well, there was an emptiness in Nicodemus. He knew there was something special about this man, Jesus, and he didn't want to miss out on what God was doing. He was hungry. So he takes an enormous risk. I have to explain to you how unpopular it would have been with his fellow Pharisees to see him sneak out and meet Jesus in the middle of the night. He's got some questions, things that he doesn't understand, but he's desperate too. And Jesus, knowing his heart, says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, which can also mean from above, unless one is born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you want the kingdom of God, but you need to know you're not going to get there by works, off your own back. That's why he uses the analogy of being born again. And I know that we've heard that so many times that it almost sounds normal. 
But you've got to understand, that would have been completely out of left field for Nicodemus. What are you talking about, Jesus? I don't know how many of you have seen a baby being born, but if you have, you'll know they don't contribute all that much to the birthing process. They're the ones being born, but they're not the ones giving birth. Can you see the analogy that Jesus is making? Someone else is working really hard. I mean, labor can be horrific. Someone else endures the pain. Someone else suffers so that a baby can experience life. Now that goes way over Nicodemus' head. But Jesus is actually pointing him to the cross. That's why he finishes by saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The law isn't going to get you there. Your own righteousness isn't going to get you there. This is something that only God can do. He gives new life. Nicodemus, you want the kingdom, then, then you need to be born again in the Spirit. That's the context. We get to verse 16, and off the back of that encounter, that story, the Apostle John writes this as a reflection. It's almost his commentary on the story that we've just read. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This isn't about us. This isn't about our goodness. Salvation is built on the foundation of God's love. And the amazing thing about God's love is that it's independent of the recipient. In other words, he doesn't love us because there's something special about us. Because we're somehow worthy of love. No, he loves us because he is love. And his character is unchanging. He loves the unlovely and those who refuse to love him in return. That's not about us. This is who he is. That love is what drove Jesus to the cross. But here's the thing. This is what would have surprised Nicodemus more than anything else in what John has just said. That love is for the world. It's not just for the people of Israel. No, God loves the world. That word is cosmos. It's talking about all of mankind that lives in opposition to God. See, the Father's heart has always been for the nations. He said to Abraham, I will bless you and make you into a great nation. But then he also said, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God's heart has always been for the nation. The people of Israel were supposed to shine as a light to the nations. And yet somewhere along the line, they lost their way. And they made it all about them. And yet here the apostle John puts in writing for all time that salvation is for all. It's for everyone. 
It's not about race or heritage. It's not about intellectual capacity or even theological understanding in and of itself. Salvation is available to all who believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ because on the cross, God did everything. Everything. You see, the good news of John 3.16 is that God took the initiative, that he came to us. And you've got to understand, this separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Salvation isn't found along some path to enlightenment. God didn't give us a list of things to do. He didn't say, hey, here's the steps that you need to take to grab hold of life to find me. No, he came to us. No other religion preaches that. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in human appearance. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was willing to meet us in the depth of our depravity and sin. And in his sacrifice, we see the depth of his love. Because God held nothing back. That he gave his one and only son the most precious thing that he has himself. And in that we see the heart of God. The truth is that every one of us deserves judgment. We rejected our creator, the source of life, and in so doing brought death upon ourselves. That wasn't God, that was us. And yet he was unwilling to leave us there. And so he sends his son to give us life to all who believe. All we have to do is believe. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. I read that verse and I see this image where the world is drowning. We abandoned God, jumped ship, and now we're drowning in our sin and shame. God sending his son is like someone throwing us a life boy. It's this incredible gift. But you reject that life boy and you seal your own fate. The truth is we were already drowning. So you reject the only thing that can save you and you condemn yourself. There's no hope for you. That's why on the day of judgment, we'll stand before the king and he'll ask us one thing. Do you know my son Jesus? That's it. It's all that it comes back to. It's the only thing he's going to ask you. Everything comes back to that one question. Do you know my son Jesus? The answer is no. It's not a reflection on God. That's a reflection on the darkness of the human heart, the stubbornness, pride, brokenness that's within us. Because the truth is that God has done everything. He created the world in such a way that it reveals his power and glory. That's Romans chapter 1. Created the stars and the sheer magnitude of the universe is a constant reminder of his majesty. 
He revealed himself through the prophets and then through the word of God, but even that wasn't enough. He took on flesh and walked amongst us so that we would know him and see him for who he is. He offers us life as a free gift of grace. And he created the church that the world would know. He's pursued us from the day we were born. Church, he's done everything. God's desire is to save, not to condemn. It's to save. And yet the sad reality is that people refuse to believe, and so judgment is a reality. It is. And we need to be honest about that. And this is where we see the dual stance of God, and it's really important. We actually hold these things together because they're both true. And when we deny one, it actually leads us off into the wrong way. These things are both true. That he unequivocally and passionately hates sin because it destroys people. And yet at the same time cries out, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God hates sin. And when we lose sight of that, we actually lose sight of the holiness of God. He hates sin. But God also loves sinners. So even in the midst of our depravity, his heart is for us. It's a paradigm that we see echoed all throughout Scripture. Paul says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then a little later in chapter sin, for the wages of sin is death. I mean, Paul couldn't be any clearer. The holiness of God means he cannot and will not abide sin. The verse doesn't end there. I'm so grateful to God that it doesn't because it goes on to say, The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God hates sin. Hates it. Abhors it. How could he not look at what sin has done to this world, that which he created good? Look what sin has done to the people, the lives of the people around you. Look at the pain. Look at the injustice. How could God not hate sin? And as his followers, how could we not hate sin? But he also loves sinners. Loves us perfectly. Agape love. That's why he offers us life. Despite the fact that we do not deserve it. That's the goodness of our God. That's his love. He offers life. So here we are, verse 19. This is how the Apostle John finishes. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. 
Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. We get to verse 19 and the Apostle John gives us this illustration of darkness and light. And it's ironic because this entire story starts with Nicodemus approaching Jesus in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness. It's almost like he stands as a physical representation of what John is saying. The world is in darkness. It's full of dissatisfied people who are desperate for more. Everywhere you turn, there's injustice and pain and brokenness. And then in steps, Jesus, the light of the world. He says, I have come to seek and save the lost. Then the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And yet people still choose the darkness. It's an incredibly sad reality. I was talking to Anna about this just last week. I look back over the years, and so many of the people that I love, so many of my friends do not know Jesus. Do not know his love, do not know his grace, do not know his peace. Do not know what it looks like and feels like to live with the fullness of life. They don't know it. That truth, this reality should give us a missional zeal. How could we say that we love people and not be absolutely committed to living out the gospel in front of them? How could we not be ready with an answer, ready to take up any opportunity? That's what love demands of us. Jesus is the light of the world. He came to drive out the darkness. He came to redeem us and set us free, and yet people choose slavery. Why? Because they love the darkness. That's confronting, isn't it? Apostle John says it's not ignorance. Now, people love their sin. They love sitting on the throne. It's what Rory Shiner talked about in May in our Clash of Convictions series. Freedom is the God of our culture, and we'll do anything to protect it. Because we bought into the lie that says happiness is about putting me first always. That's where happiness is found. Chase every desire, pursue every fantasy, do what's best for you. And I get it. There's something very attractive about living for me because we're innately selfish people, but there's no joy there. Ultimately, it leaves us empty and broken, longing for more, longing for something that would truly satisfy. Sinful people love the darkness because sin is accepted in the darkness. In fact, it's celebrated. It's called discovering who you are. They hate the light because it exposes them. Shows us and reveals us their shame. 
The holiness of God lays us bare. It makes us painfully aware of our own brokenness and forces us to humble ourselves. And not everybody is willing to do that. That's the sad reality. I think one of the best examples of this are the two criminals who were crucified either side of Jesus. It's a bizarre little story. Both of them had done horrific things. That's why they were being crucified. It's reserved for the worst of the worst. Both of them have this encounter with Jesus, the light of the world, but only one of them has a humble and contrite heart. Luke 23 says this, there were two criminals led out with Jesus to be killed. Jesus and the two criminals were taken to a place called the skull, Golgotha. There the soldiers nailed Jesus to a cross. They also nailed the criminals to their crosses, one beside Jesus on the right, that side, and one beside Jesus on the left. One of the criminals began to shout insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Then save yourself and save us too. But the other criminal stopped him and said, You should fear God. You are getting the same punishment as he. We are justly punished. We should die. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then this criminal said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, listen, what I say is true. Today you will be with me in paradise. That humility, that desperation is at the heart of someone who comes to the light. Jesus, I'm broken. Search me, lay me bare. I know what I am. I'm a sinner and I need you. That heart comes to the light and instead of experiencing judgment, discovers the agape love of God, a love that saves. It's the story of the prodigal son. You're not here because you're better. You're here because Jesus saved you. Jesus called you. Jesus redeemed you. They're his works. You are an everlasting testament of his grace. His mercy, his love. That's why John says in verse 21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have, been, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. But you know what? There's actually a better translation. The ESV is better. It would more likely say that what they have done has been carried out, has been done in God. It's not just in the sight of God, it's actually in God. Because ultimately it's all about him, even my good works, even everything. It's Jesus in me. Evidence of his grace, his mercy, the life that he brings, the fruit of his spirit. I bring nothing to the table. It's all about Jesus. I want to invite the band to come back up and to lead us in worship. Here's the thing. The world is full of people like Nicodemus. I was one of them. I was doing my thing. I was studying and having a good time. And it's not like my life was completely devoid of happiness because it wasn't. We were having fun. We were doing whatever we wanted. We lived for ourselves. And there's something that really appeals to us because it appeals to our flesh. 
There was always a thought that niggled away at me in the back of my mind. Surely there's more to life than this. That's why Nicodemus is knocking on Jesus' door in the middle of the night. That's why people are desperately searching for meaning and purpose in their life. That we were created in the image of God. We were created to know him, to walk with him, and to rule with him forever. And that's there. It's imprinted on us. And when you compare that to what the world has to offer, it always falls short. What cannot satisfy what God alone was created, what God alone created you to do. His part in your life. Here's the good news. If you actually trace Nicodemus' story, you'll see that he went away and he chewed on it. That he didn't understand what Jesus was saying right then and there, but he continued to seek after God. He was hungry. The Bible says that if you search for God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will find him. It's a promise out there for the world. So next time we hear about Nicodemus, he's defending Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin, the supreme court of Jerusalem on the night before his death. It's the next time that we hear about Nicodemus. And John even goes out of his way to tell us that it's the same man who had this encounter. And then we only hear about him one other time, and that's when he's helping Joseph of Arimathea prepare Jesus' body for the tomb. Here he is, a Pharisee, someone who was afraid to even be seen with Jesus, someone who relied on the law, on his own righteousness his entire life, anointing Jesus' body with spices, wrapping him in cloth, preparing him for his burial. That's somebody who encountered the love of God, someone who'd been changed by the grace and mercy of Jesus. And it's a reminder to us that God saves even the most unlikely of people. And God's love changes everything. It's a saving love, and we see that displayed perfectly on the cross. And truly, God has done what we couldn't hope to do so that all we have to do is belief. It's the message of John 3.16. Not about you, not about your works, not about having it all together, not about understanding perfectly, not about coming to a place where you have no doubts, not about earning anything. Now you can come to Jesus empty-handed, God has done what we couldn't possibly hope to do so that all we have to do is believe it means there's hope for everyone the gift of life is for everyone produces this love within us this worship within us that this is how God this is how good he is and it gives us this missional zeal that our desire is that other people would know this goodness experience that love would be redeemed, would be saved, brought into a fullness of life. God has done what we couldn't hope to do is that all we have to do is believe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are, that you are an amazing God.
and we look at this story and we look at what John says off the back of it and all we can do is say thank you. All we can do is worship you for who you are, for the love that you have displayed to us, for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. You are a good God. That your love is something that we don't fully comprehend. The sacrifice that you made is something that we don't fully comprehend. It's so easy to take it for granted, but Jesus, we thank you. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here tonight who does not know you, has not experienced that love, I pray, Jesus, that they would encounter you right here, right now. Know that your love changes everything. As we pray, Jesus. There's people here who don't know you. Would you change that? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you bring revelation and truth to them? Then we pray, Jesus, for those of us who have been in church for a long time, who have heard this verse so many times before that it almost has lost effect on us. We pray, Jesus, that we would encounter your love afresh. We pray, Jesus, that you would give us a greater understanding of what this means, just how great you are, the depth of love that you have displayed for us. Fill us with thanks, fill us with gratitude, with worship that flows out into obedience and love. We give you all the glory. It's all about you, your love, your gift. And so we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.